0: Let's open holy scripture this morning to the book of 2nd Chronicles. 2nd Chronicles 29 page 481 in the Pew Bible, 481. Then we'll be turning to Malachi chapter 3 and also then after that to the gospel of mark a few verses from the gospel of mark we begin with second chronicles 29 the first 15 verses where we have king hezekiah taking the throne in judah in jerusalem and Actually, just before we start 29, I want to go back to chapter 28 and read two verses there at verse 24. So 28 verse 24, uh, Hezekiah's father was King Ahaz. King Ahaz was one of the worst kings that Judah and Israel ever had. And we find in verse 24 what he did to the temple. And Ahaz gathered together the vessels of the house of God and cut in pieces the vessels of the house of God. And he shut up the doors of the house of the Lord, and he made himself altars in every corner of Jerusalem. In every city of Judah he made high places to make offerings to other gods, provoking to anger the Lord, the God of his fathers. Now to chapter 29, verse 1. Hezekiah began to reign when he was 25 years old, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. In the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. He brought in the priests and the Levites and assembled them in the square on the east and said to them, Hear me, Levites, now consecrate yourselves and consecrate the house of the Lord, the God of your fathers, and carry out the filth from the holy place. For our fathers have been unfaithful and have done what was evil in the sight of the Lord our God. They have forsaken Him and have turned away their faces from the habitation of the Lord and turned their backs. They also shut the doors of the vestibule and put out the lamps and have not burned incense or offered burnt offerings in the holy place to the God of Israel. Therefore the wrath of the Lord came on Judah and Jerusalem, and He has made them an object of horror, of astonishment, and of hissing, as you see with your own eyes. For behold, our fathers have fallen by the sword, and our sons and our daughters and our wives are in captivity for this. Now, it is in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord, the God of Israel, in order that His fierce anger may turn away from us. My sons, do not now be be negligent, for the Lord has chosen you to stand in His presence, to minister to Him, and to be His ministers and make offerings to Him. Then the Levites arose, Mahath, the son of Amasai, and Joel, the son of Azariah, of the sons of the Kohathites and of the sons of Merari, Kish, the son of Abdi, and Azariah, the son of Jehalalel, and of the Gershonites, Joah, the son of Zimmah, and Eden, the son of Joah, and of the sons of Elizaphan, Shimri, and Jeuel, and of the sons of Asaph, Zechariah, and Mataniah, and of the sons of Heman, Jehuel, and Shimei, and of the sons of Juduthan, Shemeiah and Uziel. They gathered their brothers and consecrated themselves and went in, as the king had commanded by the words of the Lord, to cleanse the house of the Lord. We'll pause there and turn over to the prophecies of Malachi, page 1020 in the Pew Bible, 1020. Last of the Old Testament books. These readings are in connection with our text in the Gospel of John, chapter 2, where the Lord Jesus cleanses the temple, and Malachi, the prophet, speaks about this in prophetic form. Chapter 3 of his book, the verses 1, or chapter 2, verse 17, and then into chapter 3, verse verse 5. verse 17 you have worried sorry you have wearied the lord with your words but you say and this is israel talking back to god how have we wearied him by saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the lord and he delights in them or by asking where is the god of justice behold i send my messenger And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, Against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Please turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 2. Continuing our series of sermons on this Gospel, we come to verses 13 through 22. So we left off last time. Jesus had been in Galilee, in Cana of Galilee, changed the water into wine at one of the wedding feasts there. And then we read in verse 13, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple He found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. (coughs) Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, and this is from Psalm 69, "'Zeal for your house will consume me.' So the Jews said to him, "'What sign do you show us for doing these things?' Jesus answered them, "'Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up.' The Jews then said, "'It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days?' but he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the Scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So far, our text. In response to the gospel preaching, we'll sing Psalm 48. Psalm 48 sings about the beauty of Zion and Jerusalem, and that's an image that we now know is fulfilled in the church, in the congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we'll sing about the beauty of the church as the Lord looks upon her. Psalm 48, stanzas 3 and 4. Church of our Lord Jesus Christ, as John, the gospel writer, continues to unfold the ministry of Jesus, it's helpful to, for a moment, take a step back and get a bird's-eye view of what the author is presenting to us. When you compare what John writes to the other gospels, you will soon realize that he has a lot of unique material… And in fact, all of chapters 1 through 5 of his gospel are filled with material that is virtually not found at all in the other gospels. To be sure, the other three gospels certainly mention John the Baptist, uh, whom this gospel mentions as well, but those other gospels soon move on to describe the ministry of Jesus as it begins following Jesus' baptism in the Jordan and after John the Baptist has been arrested and put in prison by King Herod but here in this fourth gospel John the writer is or John the baptizer is still actively preaching and baptizing all the way to the end of chapter 4 when we read that Jesus returns to Galilee so all these events in chapters 1 through 4 take place in that overlap period where John the Baptist is still actually doing his work prior to Herod arresting him. And meanwhile, Jesus is getting started on his work. So when you figure it out, somebody else has done this, and I'm just using his data. When you figure it out, it's a period of about 10 months or so that the other three Gospels virtually skip over, but John gives us a window into those 10 months. I mentioned this for a couple of reasons. First, to clarify that what John describes in our text, this cleansing of the temple, it happens at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. Second, to make you aware that in the background of these stories and conversations that are recorded in these four chapters, there's a running comparison. There's a comparison between the work of John the Baptist who came, as he said himself in John 1, he came as a voice in the wilderness to prepare the way of the Lord, and on the other hand, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who is the Lord. So John was a forerunner. John was the herald whose job was to announce the impending arrival of the king, of the Ruler of the Lord. All of those are synonyms. And Jesus is that Lord. So the gospel writer is very keen to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of John's preaching. Jesus is not just another prophet. Jesus is much more than that. Jesus is greater even than John. Jesus is that announced king. And the king comes to establish his kingdom. That calls for celebration. That's something that the gospel writer revealed to us or showed to us last time at the wedding feast in Cana. It's a time for wine, not just the water that John was using, but the wine of celebration because the king is here. And today in our text, we'll see that the Lord, the king, he comes to his own palace, to the temple where he uses his royal authority to go much further than John ever could and actually reform the worship of his people, his people Israel. So I bring you then this word of the Lord under this theme. Jesus reveals his royal authority to Israel. He has the authority to purify worship, and he has the authority to change worship. Now, before we dive into the particulars of our text, let me clear up a bit of confusion which some might have over when this cleansing of the temple took place, because as we read in Mark's gospel, and you can find parallels in Matthew and Luke, they record this this kind of incident of Jesus chasing out the merchants and presumably the animals from the temple area, as well as Him turning over the tables of the money changers. Yet, those three Gospels place this event deliberately in the last week of Jesus' ministry, just before He died, only a week or so before the cross. And John tells us that Jesus did this at the very beginning of His ministry, at least two, if not three full years earlier. So, what gives? Did Jesus cleanse the temple at the end of His ministry or at the beginning of His ministry? Well, the answer is very simple, brothers and sisters. He did it both times. The timeline in all four Gospels surrounding each event is very clearly laid out, and they very clearly do take place several years apart from each other. John is very adamant it happens in the beginning. The other gospel is very adamant that it happens at the end. And there's no real reason Jesus couldn't have done it twice. Aside from that, there are some details that are different, a key detail being that in the later account in in Mark's gospel which we read, Jesus quotes Scripture to defend His action, but here in John's gospel, there's no quoting of Scripture, not from Jesus' lips. So, Without spending more time on that this morning, I don't want to go into that more deeply, but I wanted to just put that bit out there to make you assured in your own thinking that King Jesus twice made the effort to cleanse out His Father's temple like bookends to His ministry, beginning and end. Now, to take up the details of our text, in the opening verse, we learn that Jesus, and then presumably his disciples, they have gone up to Jerusalem uh, for the Passover. This is a short while after being in Galilee to change the water into wine. And immediately we see here a totally different setting from the previous miracle. When Jesus was in Galilee, where He did His first miracle, He he did that in that tiny, obscure village, Cana, in an area of the country nobody talked about, nobody thought much about, and it wasn't very important. And the people He did it for, the people at the wedding, they didn't even know He'd done it. Only Jesus' disciples knew, and a few of the servants knew. The master of ceremonies didn't even know. So it's a very down played event, at least in terms of its publicity. It's only semi-public, that changing of water into wine. But here in our text, Jesus, He goes to the capital city. It's the opposite of Cana and Galilee. It's the most famous city in Israel. It's, it's the very heartbeat of the nation. that's the soul of Israel, where the temple is, where God's house is. Jesus goes there, And he goes there at a time when there's thousands of people in Jerusalem at the Passover feast because everybody came, every able-bodied person came to that Passover feast. And then Jesus undertakes a very public act where everybody can see and take note of what he's doing. So in Galilee, Jesus was restrained, but here in Jerusalem, Jesus explodes into action. Why? What is Jesus doing? Why does He do it? It's a very deliberate and calculated thing that He does. It might sound at first that it's kind of spur of the moment that Jesus was just kind of walking through the temple and He was kind of disgusted by what He saw with all the merchants doing their thing and then maybe a passion took over Jesus, and He just did what He did. But verse 14 tells us there's something else going on. In the temple, He found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple. He found them. Well, that verb, it's true, can sometimes mean that something was found without anybody looking, just sort of stumbled upon something, but it frequently in Scripture, and especially in John's gospel, means that it's the end result of a deliberate search. Earlier in John chapter 1, he's used this same verb. Chapter 1, verse 41, Andrew announced to his brother Andrew, or to his brother Peter, we have found the Christ. They had been searching for him all these, all, all their lives. Jesus then went to Galilee, writes the gospel writer, verse 43, and he found Philip. Philip then goes out and finds Nathaniel. They went, in each case, there was a search. You search until you find what you're looking for. Jesus went to the temple, and He went to find those merchants. And it makes sense in the context, doesn't it? After all, this wasn't Jesus' first trip to Jerusalem for the Passover. He here in our text is about 30 years of age. He's been coming to the temple, we know, since He was 12. So He would have been to 18 of these Passovers by now plus a number of the other annual feasts. Remember his passion for being at the temple, recorded by Luke in chapter 2 of his gospel. When he was 12 years old, he already then called it his father's house. I have to be in my father's house, he said to his parents. And as the years went by and he became older and he was no longer a young boy under his parents charge he would have gone to jerusalem to spend more time in his father's house as an 18 year old as a 20 year old a 22 year old he would have become intimately familiar with all the goings on in the temple precincts he would have known exactly where the animal sellers were located he'd seen them do their thing he would have known exactly where the money changers were sitting doing their business And so now, having been recently baptized by John in the Jordan, and having the Holy Spirit descend on him like a dove, the Messiah who's now starting His work, this Son of Man you recall from chapter 1, this King of Israel as Nathanael calls Him, the King, the Lord, He goes looking for those merchants. For years, their presence had bothered Him, but now it was time to reveal Himself as Israel's true King, so He comes to the temple to purify that worship of Israel. That's really what's going on here. It wasn't that what the merchants were doing was a crooked or evil thing. A couple of, or three years later, when Jesus cleanses the temple again, Jesus will accuse them at that occasion of being a den of robbers, but here He does not say that. And aside from whatever overcharges they may have been charging the people, these animal sellers and money changers on the whole were actually rendering a useful service to God's people, to the, to the godly, faithful Jews who were coming not just from distant parts of the country, but who also came from the surrounding nations, right? The Passover feast, if you were a Jew living outside of Israel, and there were lots of them from the dispersion, they had been scattered abroad to foreign nations, if there was one feast you would come to in the year, it would be the Passover feast. And if you were to come to the Passover feast from those far distant lands, you had to offer a, a, a lamb to God, a lamb without blemish. It would be very, very difficult to bring a, a tender lamb, a year-old lamb, without blemish, hundreds of miles, and keep that lamb in that pristine condition. So if you could purchase a tender lamb, a pristine lamb, close to the temple, that would be very helpful for a distant Jew who wanted to sincerely worship the Lord. Also, those money changers were doing a a reasonable thing as well. Every male Israelite, 20 years old and upward, they were required to give a half-shekel offering to the Lord for maintenance of the temple. Moses had commanded that already. Given that there were different currencies in all these different countries, It was understandable that the temple authorities insisted that only one kind of currency be used for that purpose. And so all these visiting Israelites, they would exchange their foreign currency for the one approved for the temple. So these things in themselves, they they made sense. They They were useful. They were helpful to faithful Israelites trying to worship their God according to God's own commandments. But there was just one problem with the whole thing. The problem, brothers and sisters, was the location, right? Location is everything, and they say in the the real estate world and in the business world too. Location, location, location. Well, the businessmen had the best location for their advantage. They set up shop right in the temple courts, and that's what bothered so much the Messiah King. Apparently, according to some Jewish Sources, historical sources, these businessmen, they used to have their business outside the city across the Kidron Valley. There you would have been able to do the animal purchase and the money exchange. And that would have left the temple complex inside Jerusalem. And you have to understand there there, there were a number of courts associated with the temple and a number of outbuildings associated with the temple all of it was just loosely called the temple all of that was supposed to be a place of worship and this is the concern of the lord jesus this is the concern of israel's king take these things away Take them out of, the, out of the temple courts. Do not make my Father's house a house of trade. These buildings, these courtyards, this space, is not for making money. It's not for getting the right sacrifices so that you can make the, 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 the right animals for the right sacrifices or getting the right kind of coinage. This space is for offering worship to the Lord, your God. The worship of Israel had become corrupted. It had become about form, not about the heart. Got to buy the right animal. Got to get it to the priest. Got to pay my temple tax. It's a lot easier and more convenient if we can do those things just for a minute there in the temple courts close by. Then I can quickly go to the priest and we can all be on our way. That makes a lot of sense. Very practical. Very practical. It was a religion, brothers and sisters, without a relationship with God. It was all about the business of getting it done. It was all form, no soul, no love. So Jesus the king says, my father commanded this house be built so that he could meet with his people here. So that they could come and talk with Him and pray to Him and sing to Him and offer sacrifices to Him and fellowship with Him. But instead of, of allowing it to be a meeting place, you've converted it into a marketplace. Instead of a place of quiet reflection and joyful worship, you've created a, a crowded Square with a cacophony of noise with its bleeding animals and jingling coins. Get these things out of here, says the king. Can you hear the royal authority of King Jesus ringing out? He's doing He's fulfilling what previous faithful Israelite kings did in time past, like Hezekiah, as we read. His father Ahaz had nailed shut the temple doors. He had perverted all true worship of the Lord among the Israelites, but in the first month, we read that, in the first month of his kingship in the first Year of his kingship, Hezekiah opened the doors of the temple and he commanded the Levites, My brothers, take out all the garbage. Grab those idols in there, take them out to the dump and burn them. A faithful Israelite king was one who loved the Lord, first and foremost, with all of his heart. And he showed that by his zeal for a, the, the, the purity of worship of the Israelites. And now King Jesus arrives. He has arrived with greater zeal than Hezekiah and with greater authority than ever. This is my Father's house, he dares to say. Implication, I am God the Father's Son, just as John the Gospel writer told us in chapter 1. And I command you, my people, clean out this temple from everything that distracts From all that takes away from communing with your God, from worshiping, from honoring, from fellowshipping with your covenant God, get rid of all the distractions. Do you hear your king's command, beloved? a command to you and me just the same. The temple in Jerusalem was supposed to be a wonderful place where the godly could come and meet their God. Distraction free. That was the idea. And since the Lord Jesus has come to the earth and done His work, given His life, ascended into heaven, and poured out His Spirit upon His people, upon new Israel, the temple of God has changed it has become now the congregation it's even also that individual christians are the temple of the holy spirit so the command is to to us as the temple here temple of god here this morning Is there anything in our worship services, is there anything we do on the Lord's day that detracts from or distracts us from connecting with our Father in worship? If there is, it's got to go. Get it out, says the king. Give me your full attention. I'm giving you my full attention. And what about in your individual, personal life? Your body, we read later in Scripture, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Your physical flesh, God's temple now. Is there anything in your life that distracts you from serving the Lord, your God, every moment of every day? Is there trash in your temple? Are you letting in the garbage of idolatry through your eyes, through your ears, through whatever senses? Garbage that has no place inside of God's holy house? Trash that should rather be taken out to the garbage dump and burned? Or are there activities? Activities which may very well be okay in themselves like the the business the merchants were doing activities like work or sports the arts volunteer things committee work but do those things do any of those things take your focus away from serving the lord from serving your god and father who lives inside of you this is what the lord jesus says to you and to me take these things away do not make my father's house a house of trade don't make it a house of work don't make it a house of sport or arts or entertainment or whatever Those things may have their place in our lives, but let your body be first and foremost a place of worship, a house of prayer, your Father's house, and then you can engage in all those legitimate activities as part of your worship of the Lord. That we become temples of God. That's all part of the wonderful change To worship that King Jesus signaled he signaled that he had the authority to bring about such changes and he was in the process of doing that so there's really an authority issue here in our text and the Jews pick up on that you might remember at the wedding feast at Cana it was not about authority it was about Jesus glory He revealed His identity as the Son of God who came to shine light into our darkness, our spiritual darkness, symbolized by Galilee. And it was only a semi-public event. But here in Jerusalem, the, the incident is about Jesus' full and public right to say something and to do something about the public worship of God's people. And Jesus' choice to cleanse the temple as His first public act is very deliberate and very telling. It was exactly what Scripture foretold of the Messiah as we read it in Malachi 3. Malachi 3, verse 1. The Lord is speaking there and He says, Behold, I, I the Lord, I send my messenger and He will prepare the way before me. Well, The sending of the messenger, that's a clear reference to John the Baptist. He's the messenger who prepares the way. We know that also from other scriptures. But notice the identity of the figure that the messenger will prepare the way for, Malachi 3. It is God. It is Yahweh. He will prepare the way before me, announces the Lord Yahweh. And then the prophecy continues, Malachi 3, verse 2 And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So God, through Malachi, is saying, I'm coming, my people. I'm coming right into your midst to my temple. To my palace. Now, there's two messengers mentioned in Malachi 3. Don't get confused. The one messenger prepares the way, the other messenger is actually the one who's going to come in person. That's the Lord. He calls himself a messenger. He's going to come to his people with his own message, and he's going to come in his own person. And that's what Jesus is doing. Remember, Jesus is God. Jesus is Yahweh, the covenant God, and He has come to His temple to deliver in person His divine royal message. This fits in very clearly, doesn't it, with everything John the Gospel writer has been telling us in chapter 1 about the identity of the Word Remember, the word was with God, the word was God, is God. Jesus is, we could also add to that. He is the Son of Man. He's also the ancient of days. Jesus is Yahweh. He is come a combination of these, these images. And, and, and he's actually the reality of Yahweh. He comes now with. The message for his own people, I'm going to reform you. I'm going to purify your worship of me, O Israel, my people. Malachi's prophecy even underlines that intention. Verse 3, he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver and then They will bring offerings of righteousness to the Lord. So you see, brothers and sisters, it it wasn't happenstance, it wasn't a random event that just happened to trigger Jesus to do what he did there in the temple. But this is a planned event. Centuries before planned. This is Yahweh, God of Israel, coming down with all divine and royal authority to His own temple to do what He had planned and purify His people. That was His great goal. He wants to purify them so they can offer right worship of Him. Do we, do we realize that, brothers and sisters? The, this, this great goal of God, the ultimate goal of Jesus dying on the cross is to have a people prepared for Him who will worship Him without sin, a people with whom He can mingle and fellowship and talk with and laugh with a people who love their God and Savior and who have no greater pleasure than to be with Him. That's what God is after. What we do here on Sundays in our corporate worship as church, what we do here is only religion if there is no heartfelt relationship with Jesus. Don't let it be just religion what you do here. Let it be the pure gold of a heart-to-heart relationship with Christ Jesus. Then everything we do will be filled with meaning and blessedness. The Jewish leaders understand there's an authority issue here, for they challenge Jesus on that point. Verse 18 What sign do you show us for doing these things? In other words, what gives you the right to direct the affairs of the temple? That's our job. We're the leaders of the Jews, not you, Jesus of Nazareth notice how the pharisees and the scribes are more concerned about their own position their own authority than they are about the issue of true worship of god they don't stop and reflect on why jesus might be doing what he's doing they don't even ask him why he's doing what he's doing after all they're the ones who let the merchants come right into the temple complex and change the character of that place so They aren't bothered by all the commotion that's going on there. Their question shows a complete lack of awareness of what the temple was all about. They have a complete lack of concern for Yahweh. They have a total lack of interest in or trust in the messenger of the covenant who's standing there with a whip of cords in his hand. Who do you think you are, Jesus They ask for a sign prove it prove to us that you have this authority they were demanding a miracle on the spot but jesus never dances to anybody's tomb jesus is the lord not those guys he is master he is in control he does offer them a sign But it's a sign they could not understand. And they would never understand because of their lack of faith. Verse 19, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Now consider who is saying this. This, the person saying this, we've seen, is Yahweh in the flesh. The messenger of the covenant. This is the word who is God. Jesus has come, the Word has come to tabernacle in human flesh among His people. John's told us these things. In other words, Jesus is the temple come to life, so to speak. Everything that the temple represented, the home of God on earth, the meeting place of God and man, Jesus actually fulfills those things to the max in His person. And to clarify this for his readers, the gospel writer adds an explanation, verse 21, but Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. The Jewish leaders thought he was speaking about the, the buildings of the temple complex, which had taken 46 years to construct. And so they laugh at him. They mock him. How could you possibly build that up in three days? But the Lord The messenger of the covenant is saying something far, far greater, something far more precious than this temple of stone is staring you in the face. Look at me. They look, but they don't see. But for those who did see His disciples later, us today, there is a subtle yet unmistakable sign that the King of Israel, the Lord of the covenant, is ushering in big changes that would bring about a more pure, more faithful, more intimate worship from His people. For once the temple of Jesus' body was destroyed on the cross and brought back to life on Resurrection Sunday, the temple of stone in Jerusalem no longer required. The animals being sold in the temple no longer needed for the Lamb of God had been sacrificed once for all. No need for the money changers either for the stone temple in Jerusalem would become the living temple of congregations and even individuals here and there and everywhere among Jew and Gentile throughout the world. That was the big change that was coming that Jesus is just hinting at, he's just pointing at through that that word about His body. And the worship that new Israel would bring would be cleansed by Christ's blood. And it would be offered to God through the power of Christ's Spirit, something old Israel could only dream of. Jesus is saying, with this whole event, the water of the old system, think of the cleansing water up in Cana, the water of the old covenant is being replaced by the wine the wine of the new so brothers and sisters your savior jesus is your covenant god and king who's given everything for what he's given everything everything his last drop of blood he's given it all To be with you he wants to be with you so be with him be with him with all of your being worship him serve him with everything that's in you let your heart be filled with a love for the lord jesus Let your mind be filled with thoughts of the Lord Jesus. Let your physical strength be used in your daily tasks and whatever you do, let it be used to honor the King Jesus and get ready for the day when we will be with the Lord face to face. Having that unspeakable joy, and wonder of the the company of jesus in person and experiencing his holy friendship forever we taste it now we'll get it in full when he comes back amen